Welcome to Boobs Aren't Worth Dying For, the podcast dedicated to integrative health and healing from breast cancer and breast cancer treatment using the best of conventional and natural medicine. Your host, Deborah Beaumont, is an advanced practice nurse, functional medicine practitioner, and fellow breast cancer survivor. Well, thank you for joining us for today's episode. I am interviewing Dr. Nasha Winters. She is a practitioner uh, dedicated to her own recovery since she was 19 years old and given a terminal cancer diagnosis, and she proved them wrong, and she did it on her own terms. She not only healed herself, but she became an expert, an educator, an advocate to all of us who are looking for answers. Um, she is a global health authority and a best-selling author. She is the author of uh, The Metabolic Approach to Cancer, which is a book you can get on Amazon. Or, and if you don't have that book, I recommend all of you get it. If there is one Bible you want to be referring to as you navigate your own recovery, she has written this book that is very scientifically based, but it is written in very approachable, real-term language that you can understand and implement in your own life. So if you have no other resource immediately available to you. I highly recommend her book. It is The Metabolic Approach to Cancer. Nisha is also a highly sought-after national and international speaker who is being a little bit curtailed right now because of COVID, but um, that's only her in-speaking events. Um, She's still out there being the dynamo that she is. She is an expert speaker in the area of cancer as a metabolic process. She is an expert and advocate of the ketogenic diet in um, in treating cancer. She is a leading expert and educator in the uh, area of therapeutic use of mistletoe in cancer. And this is something that she not only teaches, uh, she she no longer directly works with patients because the demands on her time are so great, but she still works with um, educating practitioners, other professionals in the use of mistletoe and and what a phenomenal treatment it is. And, And her biggest thing right now, which I know consumes a lot of her passion and her energy, is that she is a co-founder of the Believe Big Institute of Health, which is an amazing integrative um, center that she is co-creating with um, other practitioners that is going to be um, a phenomenal treatment center that is dedicated to a comprehensive metabolic and integrative approach to cancer care. It's going to be residential, it's going to be treatment-focused, it's going to be research-focused, and it's going to be bringing the best of integrative practices unlike anything that we have, at least in this country. I'd like to welcome you, Nisha. Thank you so much for joining us and sharing your time with us. And if there's anything I missed, please feel free to jump in. You did a great job. You you know more about me than I know right now. <laughs> well, I, I, I did tell her, and I will tell everyone, I'm one of her fangirl stalkers. So I, I follow her. Um, as a matter of fact, I just registered for a workshop that's happening in October. And I did it for the sole purpose that you were a presenter and I wanted to be there. Um, I don't know if it will happen with COVID, you know, so, um, you know, the best made plans, but still, I'm one of your fangirl stalkers. So... <laughs> Awesome. That's so good. And I tell you, it is such strange times that anything that was live is now moving virtual and anything that was, um, you know, that, that, that needed to still be live, they're moving into 2021 and some things have been canceled. My world is just been turned upside down like everybody else's and I'm just rolling with it. So I think that's the best we can do. It's been a long time since we've gotten to do this together and I, we got to catch up a little bit beforehand. I'm really glad to see you thriving in the midst of all, it's great. Thanks for having me back. For my listeners, you know, um, the story is that I um, did um, 
get dealt with another cancer diagnosis in my own life. And it was, it was coming back to Nisha's work. Um, it was coming back to what I learned from her. It was coming back to her work that gave me a new roadmap, you know, to my own health and recovery. And, you know, like, like you said, we're all a work in progress. And, um, and yet it is, you know, being thrown back into the medical system so heavily, um, it's the only thing that makes sense to me. You know, it's, it's the only thing that I can wrap my mind around, uh, uh, you know, in terms of, of what do I do and, and how do I, where do I hold myself mentally and physically and spiritually to deal with this? And I think that that's one of the things that your work does is it's, it's, it's founded in hope. It's founded in recovery. We're, we're all rowing, you know, in the same boat. I love it. And in the same direction as you pointed out in our previous conversation. Right. So I love that. And, you know, I think it's so interesting that you bring that this up because I think that people feel that if they're having a recurrence or a progression or a brand spanking new cancer after walking down that road, I think there's a lot of times we beat ourselves up for that. And we somehow think it's wrong or that somehow we brought it in. And the way I look at it is, first of all, this is a nonlinear process, right? right? And I love those people, you know, those, you've seen those memes that it shows like, here's A to Z and it should be like a straight line. But the reality is it's all those like, <laughs> just in one of those squiggly lines. And for me, when these things come up again and again and again, or in a different way, it's just saying, Hey, you've done all of these, you plucked these other weeds. This is just one that's found its way to the surface. That's been waiting to capture your attention at the right time and place that's ready. It's ripe now to be plucked. It's ripe now to have that soil amended. It's not that it's something wrong. It's actually something right. It's, it's calling your attention to something that needs to find like where your awareness needs to be brought to it for whatever reason. So I just think that helping people understand that part of their journey. I know for myself, when I've had issues of it kind of yelling at me again and getting my attention, it was so easy for me to realize okay, yeah, I did neglect this part of myself or I had not, I I thought it was done with that piece, but clearly I'm not. Or there were some other blind spots to this process. And I'm so many years out of my own journey will be 29 years, October 21st. Amazing. Crazy. And this is just to, I I think you went into your story before, but you were given this diagnosis at 19, told that you were in stage and given, you know, given the expiration date stamp that traditional medicine gives you. Yeah, they told me I would not basically see Christmas 2020 or uh, 1991. And it was, I was having issues. I was in and out of the the, um, urgent care and and in and out of my college, you know, uh, health center pretty much monthly for about nine months prior to my diagnosis. And just shy of my 20th birthday, I ended up in the emergency room. Um, after being sent home again and again, just even days before in something like something's really wrong here. My belly was giant. I couldn't eat anything I put in, came back up. I was in excruciating pain. I I was really, and I didn't understand. And when you, when you're the lobster boiling in the pot of hot water, you don't know how bad it is until someone that hasn't seen you for a while, like looks at you with like, holy crap, where I had just been, it's like watching your hair grow. You know, you don't see it. I knew something was wrong. I knew I couldn't even maneuver myself across the room. I knew that my legs were swelling up and I couldn't figure out what was going on. By the time I landed in the hospital, my oxygen levels were in the seventies. Um, there was fluid built up in, around my lungs, you know, in my lungs, around my heart. My abdomen was full of, 
ascites fluid. My organs were in end stage failure. I had a tumor pushing against um, my right ureter, you know, completely compressing all of the blood flow on my right side of my body. You know, my liver was scattered with tumors. My um, whole, you know, peritoneal cavity was scattered with tumors. Every little layer of tissue in my body was covered with little tiny lesions everywhere. Oh my God. Proper evaluation. My CA125 was over 15,000 and I was literally taking my last breath. I was gasping for my last and it was finally like they just treated me like a histrionic teenage girl for nine, 10 months leading up to that moment. And when they finally, you know, finally took a look, they were all horrified, you know? So these are the places like you and I were talking before the recording. It's like, we have to advocate for ourselves. I knew something was wrong and I should have demanded the nation of today. (laughs) (laughs) That 10 months go by. I would have been like you and I talking before the show, like your conversation at the front desk, I am very good for advocating for myself now. <laughs> um, well, let, let's really focus on that because yeah. this is, this is if, I know in my work with clients, if, if I do nothing else, if I do nothing else but getting through to them, that you are hiring whoever you, you are going to for service. I don't care how many degrees they have. I don't care what their title is. I don't care what their specialty is. You are hiring them to work for you. And these people who feel like, oh, I can't talk to my doctor because he'll get mad at me or he'll yell at me because I don't want to take this aromatase inhibitor or, you know, he'll get mad at me if I ask questions. If that's your relationship with your provider, then find another one. They need to be working in partnership with you. And if they are intimidated or pissed off or whatever their agenda is with you being an advocate in your own health, they are not the person to be working on your team. Exactly. It's huge. And you know, you are the CEO of your own body. So you can um, fire and hire, um, you know, board members at any time. And do you have that feeling that someone is going to be upset with your choice or not support your choice? That is exactly as you said, it's like, it's time to look for someone who will. Now there are definitely times and moments where we're not clear thinking, we're making rash decisions um, out of fear. Um, and, and there are people out there who can say, let me give you a different perspective for you to understand. I know you don't want to do this, but let me give you a little bit more information to help. That's a different right. type of conversation than someone saying it's this way or the highway. And if someone is concerned their doctor is going to fire them, that's actually exactly the doctor you don't want to work with. You getting to that position of having a diagnosis that can be life-threatening was about you compromising yourself for so many years. I mean, it, it was years and years of not listening to your instincts, of self-advocating for yourself, of speaking your truth. So if you continue down that same path with someone telling you it's this way or the highway, or no, we can't entertain these other options, or no, I won't answer your questions that you come in with every visit because that doesn't, we don't have time for that. That is your opportunity. That is your opportunity to start to change things. And so, you know, and even Bernie Siegel's work and others um, back in the eighties, my gosh, we're showing that the bigger pain in the ass you are to your healthcare providers, the higher um, likelihood you're going to survive. Exactly. You want to be that self-advocate. You want to ask questions. You want to be present. You want to be in the driver's seat. You do not want to be the passenger or in the back, uh, your backseat or in the trunk. You know, you need to be right there. Um, And really your healthcare team is about being more like your GPS to say, do we need an alternate route? There's a hazard in the road ahead. Shall we avert that in another way? That's what your healthcare team is there for. They're not supposed to be driving you. You're supposed to be driving you. Well, so many of the things that I know you and I both, um, you know, I am just a mere acolyte to you and your wisdom and knowledge. 
But so many of the things that we work with our clients, whether it's it's specialized testing, like a Dutch test to understand your hormones or, you know, a nutrition genome, these are tests that, that traditional oncologists don't, they're just not trained in them. It doesn't make them invalid. It's just not part of their, their training. They're too busy. You know, they just haven't put it in their toolbox. And that's when you go and find somebody where you have a team, you, you know, you don't necessarily have to, you know, my oncologist doesn't know what a Dutch test is, but, but I have an integrative oncologist on my team. I have you, I have your book, I, I have an acupuncturist. It, it's not that it's, it's not like, oh, well, you don't know this, but you've got to be able to say not only um, uh, no to treatments, but no, I've had to press the doctor to get lab tests. I mean, every time I, I have very poor veins, and so they get one chance to get blood for me. My oncologist has his test that he orders. And then I get my test that I add on. So now I walk in and they're like, okay, what are your add on tests? But I get those orders written by other practitioners. And I go in and it's like, okay, what he has ordered is here. And now you need to draw out six more tubes because I've got all these other tests to do. It doesn't have to be an either or, but, but you have to be working in conjunction and partnership. Totally. And that's, I think, the reality. It's like so much about cancer itself in uh, from the kind of the more vitalistic traditional medicine background. So from Ayurveda, Chinese medicine, homeopathy, naturopathy, anthroposophical medicine, the idea of cancer itself is very different than how we look at it today. It's like a genetic disease that needs a single target with a single treatment. And then therefore you go through that process. And if that fails, then you look at the next target and the next treatment. And if that fails, you that's how we do it today. And then we also today take this maximum tolerated dose that we're going to hit it as hard as we can, as much as we can, that takes you to the brink of death. And then we hope that when it's done, that there's a few bits of you still left and the cancer is quiet. And then we move on. Now, the vitalistic medical backgrounds have a very different understanding of this. They understand it as an accumulation of issues in the body, issues in the tissues that, that build up over time. And by the time it's big enough and loud enough to capture our attention, five, 10 years may have gone by from the moment that it sprouted into being something a little more of a rogue cell to the moment that it's big enough to be seen on a screen, you know, on an imaging or in a blood test or in a symptom picture. And so we recognize it as a process, not as an event. And we also then say, what is it asking for? What is it trying to tell us? What is the message of this? And what a lot of these vitalistic practices have, have found is that cancer itself is simply a messenger. And it's a messenger to tell us where we lost our communication, our connection, our rhythm prior to it being big enough, loud enough. So part of the job is to explore that, come back to the point where that rhythm was lost and start to correct it. Now, you can be dual acting on the primary tumor or tumors, if it were, with some cytotoxic therapy simultaneously, but for you to have a really good, robust response that's maintainable for the long haul, you want to be exploring all the other things that were out of your, you know, out of your view for God knows how long. And if it does keep coming back or shows up again in a different way, it's like, okay, well, what else is there? You know, and I know you are, you can share whatever part of your own story, but you shared some things with me that were compelling to tell me that you are definitely a detective in your own process to understand the, the, why it's kind of letting you know where it is right now and why it was, the timing was so appropriate for it to show back up and you were in a good, safe place for it to show back up. It's almost like 
your body was incredibly wise and said, we've got some unfinished business until you're in a better place for this. And then we're going to let you know. And then you're going to be the advocate for yourself now. So advocate for yourself. So you can do things differently. And here you are. What a different outcome. If you were still the same um, Deborah before from the very first time, 23 years ago, you wouldn't have survived this, this time around. That's what's so extraordinary is you are different this time. And I want people to just remember that, that it's not linear and that it will be done when it's done. And that it's a process, not an event. And that you are far more powerful than anybody has led you to believe. And that the curiosity and the willingness to keep exploring is what it's all about. That's what keeps us going. Well, you know, I've heard so many women say, well, I did nutrition and I followed this and I still had a recurrence or whatever, but it doesn't mean you got no benefit from the things that you've done. Like you said, you're just at a, at a, a different point along the path. In my case, I certainly dealt with that as a patient and a practitioner, like, oh my God, I've been doing this and I teach it and I work with clients and I still got another diagnosis of cancer. But, but like we were talking about before, I didn't know functional medicine I, when I was diagnosed with my breast cancer. And I was just at the mercy of traditional medicine. And it was, it was a really bad path. And it was by learning functional medicine that I was like, oh, this is what was happening. Oh, this is what I need to understand. So now 10 years later, I go in and I'm the one that is talking to my doctor about what is my vitamin D level? What is, what is my methylation? You know, my, my oncologist, uh, I, I think I've told this story before, but that's one of the tests that he doesn't follow that I order. Yeah, I, my first vitamin D level, which, you know, for anybody who doesn't know this, vitamin D is one of the basic things we all need to monitor in terms of our um, supporting our immune system, cancer prevention, protecting breast cancer, all of this. When I started, my level was 17. And my it was my traditional oncologist who said, you need to get it to 60. Finally, for the first time in nine years, and I take some, some pretty hefty supplementation, um, I walked in, my level finally was 79. I was ready to do a happy dance. And uh, I'm like, oh my God, I've been working on this for 10 years. And my, and my oncologist turned around and he said, well, I, I, why do you, I don't, I don't know anything about this. I'm like, well, that's too bad. You know, but, but yeah, and, and it is too bad because this is actually mainstream medicine. This isn't just alternative medicine. This is, has been part of the mainstream for a long time. And he said, oh, you know, but there's no studies that show that a level greater than 30 is going to give you a better outcome. Wow. And I was like, actually, that's not true. And I will bring you those studies because I provide those in my education to my clients. I will bring you those studies and actually whether you ever recommend it or not, this is not what I'm seeing you for. What I'm seeing you for is to pre prescribe this particular chemotherapy treatment that I need. I'm working with other people ar around other issues of health. So it's not my job to like convert you, but you should know about this. And if you don't, that, that doesn't, I still see him. He's great for what I do see him for, but he is not the sole authority. If there's anything that people can take in terms of that sense of hopelessness or that sense of futility in what this whole cancer process and treatment and recovery does to you is that you do, you, there is information. There's a whole world out there now that, that, you know, in 10 years has fundamentally shifted. And thank God I now know enough to, to not only, um, help my patients be advocates, but to help me be an advocate and plug in at a different level for myself. Like you said, it's really, you don't even see it because you, you're the lobster in the boiling water. Exactly. And, and wouldn't it be interesting to consider that this um, process for you was simply to make you even a better teacher and advocate for others? Well, you know, as, um, as my listeners know, I'm just resuming my podcast, but, but 
I, yeah, I spent some time, it took me out and I had to spend some time healing physically and mentally and emotionally. But, um, you know, for right now, the thing is, is like, I've got shit to do and I don't have time to die. Uh, there's there's too many women that, that need to hear this, whether it's a, a podcast or I'm working with them or whatever, but it's like, it, it's like, I've got living to do. I've got, I, I'm too busy, you know, to sit around and just wait to die. Exactly. You know. Good, good. I love that. And talk about empowerment. You know, and I really wanted to do some really targeted, like, information. And you and I have taught, had this conversation before, but I really want to get to some nitty gritty, like, just baseline things that that we all need to know. So right. we've already talked a little bit about it. So my first point that I wanted to bring out is let's just get over this myth that cancer is just a genetic disease and it's just genetic Russian roulette whether you get it or not. Seriously, your whole work, your life work is based on the fact that this is a metabolic process that is at, that is the end result of what you call the, the uh, terrain 10, which is very well covered in your book, as I said, in a very approachable way. But there are women and, and physicians who still say this is, a, this is a genetic thing, you either get it or you don't. And, and in the world of functional and integrative medicine, we know that that's not true. Less than, it's like there is that subset of, you know, BRCA and actual genetic mutations that affects your, your probability. But in many cases, that's not what's happening. You're BRCA negative. You know, you're not having the genetic mutation. So it is the foundation of your work is that it's not a genetic disease, that it's one that's affected by our environment, our lifestyles, our, you know, our exposures. And I, I certainly believe that as well. Definitely. Well, and it's interesting you bring that up because um, for several years, right, I think 2012 and I think again, 2017, um, and I could be a little bit off on the dates, but a couple of researchers out of Harvard, uh, Tomasetti and Vogelstein um, are of the mindset and of the camp that still sees cancer as a genetic disease, as a Russian roulette game that we have nothing we can do about it. It's simply bad luck that we're just sitting ducks and we're basically out. You know, it's like you either get it or you don't. There's nothing you can do about it. Don't even try. There's no such thing as prevention. It's just going to happen or it's not. This is where we now know in the statistics, one in two men, one in 2.4 women, World Health Organization saying an additional 50% of the population expected to experience cancer in their lifetime, um, double cancer rates by 2030 worldwide. So when you hear that, knowing that we've always had cancer, but it's picking up momentum for some time, that right there should be your first clue that this is not just a genetic roulette game, right? literally in the same institution. I'm not sure where they are as far as on the campus of Harvard, but on the same campus, in the same institution, there are researchers, Dr. Peterson, um, with an S-E-N at the end of his name, Pete Peterson. Um, their research are some of the groundbreaking research doing the nuclei cell transfers, of basically taking the, the hard drive out of a healthy cancer cell and putting it into replacing the hard drive of a cancer cell. And if this was a genetic disease, that hard drive should make that cancer cell healthy. And vice versa, if you took the hard drive out of that cancer cell and replaced the hard drive in the healthy cell, you should, if this is a genetic disease, turn that healthy cell into a cancer cell. Doesn't happen. Right. Never happened. Repeat, 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 repeat for decades and decades of these nuclear cell transfer studies showing that that's not the case. And you even alluded to, yes, there are, you know, upwards of 5% of cancers do have a genetic component, but even those genetic components can still have 
lifestyle and dietary influences that silence those gene expressions or turn them on, right? So even if there is kind of a strong genetic piece, there's still a bit of power within us to change how they express. That's going on and on and on. And luckily worldwide, we are having researchers globally starting to say, let's not put all of our eggs in the baskets of genes. Some doctors or some researchers are not quite ready to let go of the gene theory altogether, but they're definitely having the recognition that metabolic is likely the real theory and likely the main driver. And there are definitely many others who said, F the gene theory, this is all metabolic and metabolic only. But ultimately, our entire medical system and our entire care for the cancer patient is still in this outdated, antiquated, genetic disease place. So even when we look at targeted therapies, like we are doing some amazing things in two assays today, right? And we're like, cool, look, I've got an AKT target, or I've got an EGFR, or a VEGF, or an ERPR target, and we can use certain drugs to go after those targets. You can definitely impact the tumor expression, you can definitely reduce it to some level and have some type of a response, but it by no means changes the soil. So you can use those drugs still as a great way to push back the burden, but you do not want to forget what's wrapped around that tumor and the tumor cell. That's where Western medicine fails over and over and over again, including the metabolic researchers. They get this thinking, we're just going to target the glycolytic pathway or the glutamine pathway, or the autophagy pathway, or the fatty acid pathway, and it's all going to be good. We're just going to attack those metabolic pathways and we'll be fine. Same freaking dead end, right? And then for all this time, it's like, great, whatever it takes to push back the, the big driver on the target, use that, but do not lose sight of everything else wrapped around it. And that's where work of people like Dr. Mina Bissell, who's been at this, what, 35, 40 years, famous oncology researcher who has always seen cancer as a disease of the terrain of the extracellular matrix of what those cells swim around in is what's causing the signaling to either grow, baby grow or stop. And that's where we need to be focusing our attention. Now, guess what? There aren't really drugs to target that. So that's why this hasn't really caught on because that means there's no money in it. Okay, that sounds harsh, but the type of things that change the signaling pathways at that extracellular matrix terrain level is all about diet, lifestyle, toxicant exposure, thought processes, hormone balance, microbiome, you know, inflammatory processes, angiogenic processes, stress and circadian rhythm processes. You catch my drift. Those are the 10 terrain terrains. What is bucket, right? And so that's what I have had an amazing experience with personally and professionally for nearly three decades now, and that I'm totally fine with targeting whatever target we have there, but I recognize it is this much, you know, the process, and we have to keep going around it because if we ignore even a single one of those 10 pathways, those 10 terrain triggers, we will have the likelihood of this coming back and letting us know as such, you know? And one of the things that we were talking about and referencing, you know, some of the other guests that I've had, understanding that pathway is understanding, um, I, I heard you, as I said, I stalked you, so I heard you on a, a talk recently, you know, talking about not only our physical habits, you know, our diet and our lifestyle, but our emotional habits, our stress habits, you know, we have a particular way, particularly in this country, of relating to stress that isn't healthy for anybody, whether you have cancer or not. 
And part of it's habitual, part of it's like it means something if you're not stressed out and overcommitted. And one of the things that I want to make sure that I really just want to get on the table because this is this is something that I, I struggle with even um, integrative and functional practitioners about. And that's the whole issue of hormones. Ooh, yeah. We could have like days of talking about this. So when a woman has a is diagnosed with breast cancer, when they do that biopsy, one of the things they're looking at is whether or not you have a hormone positive or negative cancer. And it, it means different things for treatment. I have seen even naturopaths and holistic practitioners talk about the fact that you can still take exogenous um, bioidentical hormones. Um, and my question was, uh, I know for a fact, since, you know, I've looked at my own reports, that a tumor, it tells you there are many receptors that we know that uh, cancer cells develop that promote their growth and metastasis. Um, insulin, glucose, progesterone, and estrogen. And we all hear about estrogen. And I remember talking to a practitioner who was saying, but, you know, you can still take bioidentical progesterone. And I'm like, well, if we're, if we're stripping estrogen theoretically, because these cells have more estrogen receptors, and we're testing it for progesterone receptors. So we know they, they've also got to be in a maladaptive way using progesterone. How can you say it's safe to give any kind of bioidentical hormone to anybody who is concerned about or has had a diagnosis of cancer? I just want to get this out on the table from you who I consider to be like the expert, you know, the goddess in terms of of this, I've heard you talk about this, but I really want to get it out there for our listeners about the use of hormones because, unfortunately, without them, we are more prone to what we consider those really um, uncomfortable symptoms of menopause, or particularly when we're taking these hormone suppressant drugs. It, we can be significantly miserable, so we need to figure out ways to address that without necessarily going back to the thing that's feeding these tumors. Whew, so can of worms. Yeah. Um, I got to take, there's, there's a lot of context to this as to why I say and feel the way I do. I want to also start to, by acknowledging that a lot of my colleagues um, definitely disagree with my stance on this and I'm okay with that. Um, I think it's very powerful to disagree, but I would like their data to help me understand how they choose what they choose. And what I will tell you is most of the time people don't have that data. Um, so that's, I'm a data-driven girl. That's just how I am. I'm not dogmatic. I'm data-driven. Let me take us all the way back. We have culturally, historically, never had what we in today's world qualify as a disease process known as menopause, okay? Uh -huh. So since the beginning of time, since the beginning of humans, women have gone through a process of procreation, you know, like, and birthing children and going into menopause, yada, 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 right? Now, in, in as such, there was never anything of people ever talking about, even in data 5,000 years ago in the Sanskrit writings of Charaka Samhita, the, or the um, oldest written text of medical text, or in the 3,000-year-old textbooks of Chinese medicine, no one was ever talking about, you know, the treatment of menopause as like some unnatural aberration of ourselves. It was like a natural process that your, your, your life force, your chi changes direction at different times for different reasons. You need to get ready to make babies, then you need to get ready to deliver and raise babies, and then you need to get ready to send them off to do their own raising of babies, and you do other things. So our energy needs shift over time. 
there's that context. Um, the other piece of this is that thanks to a, a very unfortunate event in the 1960s of a man, an, an MD basically saying that women who are going through menopause are former shells of themselves, um, is how the industry started is when we started the Premarin hormone replacement world. You need to know that. The other piece that women need to know, and this one really chaps my hide, are all of my friends and colleagues out there who actually believe that bioidentical hormones are natural hormones. Right. What the actual F on that, bioidentical hormones are nothing, they're synthetic, number one. The only reason why they're called bioidentical is because they look so much to your receptor sites, like your own endogenous creation of hormones, that they can bind to those receptor sites comfortably. But what they don't tell you is that they bind to your receptor sites way more intensely than your endogenous hormones. So it's a lock and key system. They should come in, turn a lock, and basically pull the key out and move through. That's how our normal hormones are. Like get into their job, get out, get into their job, go out, get out, get into their job, get out. Bioidentical hormones or other synthetic hormones like Premarin, they're all the same. I don't even, what, what it's just literally marketing. Um, they have the same, they might be a little bit different on one level, you know, as far as the potency, et cetera, but ultimately they're the same concept. They strongly um, lock into that key system and they hang out a lot longer than our natural ones do. That starts to back up all kinds of things in the system. And depending on people's metabolic blueprint, their um, single nucleotide polymorphisms, so the genes they were born with, also the dirty genes of just living on the planet and what we're being exposed to, like exogenous hormones from plastics and animals that are being fed on high-grain diets and glyphosate being sprayed all over your property and in your grains and legumes and soy products that you think you're eating to make you healthy. These are the things that start to come in and send other mixed messages to your hormones as well and make the metabolic methylating detoxification pathways even more gummed up. So when you have these cars parked in the garages that are taking up way more space than your natural ones, and then you have all of these dirty gene things happening behind that, even if you have good metabolic single nucleotide polymorphism functioning, we're gumming up today, just in the world we live in. So I'm bringing that to your attention to recognize there's nothing natural about exogenous hormone replacement therapy. The very concept of replacement is the antithesis of naturopathic medicine. Our entire education is based on restoration of function, not replacement of function. And my colleagues who want to fight me on that, they need to go back and read their first um, initiations into naturopathic medicine, their philosophy courses, the works of Dr. Lindlar and others to recognize that we can restore the body's function by removing the obstacles to cure and supporting the natural functionings of the body, maybe short-term supplementation of different things to help that balance out, evaluating the detox and methylation pathways, and helping patients navigate that more elegantly versus just adding more insult to injury of layer caking up the exogenous hormones to put a bandage or a sticker over the check engine light when you start to have those symptoms. So symptoms of menopause are not natural. I look at women from my grandmother's generation and my mother's generation who never in a million years even had a single hot flash or a single issue. Those symptoms are a pro- they're telling us there's something wrong. They're very, very rarely, in fact, probably less than 2% of the population, are they actually hormone deficiency? 
they usually are hormone excess and improper hormone detoxification and methylation processes. So I will tell you, I had a private practice for 17 years where in that time, by the time I closed my practice to standard of care patients, I had 2,500 active patients. And then I moved entirely into oncology. So I had a nice group of patients, most of them women, as is true to anybody coming to see a naturopathic doctor. I literally never once in my entire career prescribed a bioidentical hormone, not a single time. In fact, I was even, I could probably count on two hands the times I prescribed and mainly out of extreme necessity, a little bit of short-term, super low-dose topical estriol cream, okay? I use some of the nature throids, west throids, and armors where appropriate to restore function for a period of time unless someone's come to me and had their thyroid blown out from removal from surgery or radiation uptake or years and years of on improper treatment for their thyroid where I'm helping them along because now they've had their thyroid replaced function for so long that they need some support. So those are the only two times. None of my patients are former shells of themselves. Their bones are phenomenal. Their cardiovascular health better than you can possibly imagine. Their mental well-being and their sharpness of brain function, their moods, their sleep patterns, their sex drive, their lubrication, all golden. Why? Because I'm restoring their function. I'm removing the obstacles to cure and I'm bringing them back to wholeness of themselves. This doesn't even have to do yet with cancer. So let me talk about that. My colleague that I love, I've been asked to read a lot of books in hormones and endorse and write to these things. I've not ever been able to because it seems like everyone jumps on the prescription pad bandwagon um, Mm -hmm. immediately without saying, why is that woman having a hot flash? Why is she having insomnia? Why is her libido down? Why is she vaginally dry? Why is it painful on, on intercourse? Why, why, why? They're not asking those questions. And so I start to explore that with my patients and start to find out what those obstacles are. So when my colleague, Dr. Mindy Peltz, P-E-L-Z, came out with her book and she had me do an early read and endorse it, it's now out on Kindle. And I can't think of the name of the book right now. So I'm sorry, Mindy, if you're hearing this, but Google her on Amazon and you'll see it. It's coming out in paper later. But when I read it, I was like, holla frickin' luyah that this person is finally talking about the real drivers of hormonal imbalance. And there are three things and three things simply. And these three things also mimic what has changed since World War II, which is also what's changed since women started having these alleged menopausal issues and that they needed to suddenly be addressed, despite the fact that at that time, cultures around the world didn't even have languaging to describe what we were starting to call a disease process and start to treat in this culture. So a Western culture definitely is more prone to this and the wrong questions are being asked to these patients. It's not a hormone deficiency. It's a hormone imbalance and a detoxification methylation problem. So the three things, insulin, you talked about this yourself, right? the fact that we have now ingest from about 1855 pounds of sugar per person per year to today, an average of 175 pounds of sugar per person per year should probably be a clue. We so, talked about- um, let's just highlight that. Yeah. <laughs> 175 pounds of sugar per, in, per, year. per person. Yeah. I mean, and, and so when these doctors are saying your diet doesn't matter. Thank you. Seriously, you go into a you go in to get chemotherapy, and they've got Ugh. bowls of candy sitting there. Yeah, you, it's it's mind boggling. Make it make it a, a a a little pack of almonds or something. Exactly. You know, 
yeah, you need nutrition and you need energy, but but let's face it, do you really think you're going to get the same nutritional value from a handful of almonds that you are from a Snickers bar? That's a super good thing. And also to watch where we've gotten that 175, that has exponentially grown since World War II as well. We've really fueled the sugar industry and it's in everything. It's incredible how you have to go out of your way to read labels to make sure extra sugar has not been added. Right. It's really incredible to me how many patients think they eat no sugar. And then I have them do a macronutrient counter like chronometer, my fitness pal, or just take a regular diet diary. And what they realize very quickly is they eat three days worth of RD nutritionist recommended sugar at breakfast right? So even the RD nutritioners are saying that all of us should be eating less than 100 grams of carbohydrate a day, all of us, period. And in breaking that down between carbohydrates into um, fiber and sugar, they're saying you should have no more than 25 grams of sugar for men and 20 grams of sugar for women. The rest should be fiber, right? I will tell you right now, the American Dietetics Association specific to cardiovascular disease, their recommendations put you at three days worth of sugar just at their breakfast recommendation. Oh yeah. With their freaking glyphosate drenched Cheerios breakfast cereal with bananas and dried fruit with skim milk and the glass of orange juice. And a glass of orange juice. You're at several hundred grams of sugar right there. Oh, I love it when they're like, this is heart healthy and heart approved. Oh my word. I'll tell you three women have contacted me in the last week telling me, that their doctors put them on a quote-unquote low-carbohydrate diet because they're so afraid of keto, low-carbohydrate. But their doctor told them that to drop their to drop their carb intake to 150 grams a day. Oh, my God. Like, that is not low-carbohydrate on in, in any reference I've ever read. But think about how much they're eating if 150 exactly. is, is, the, is the floor. Where were they before? <laughs> We call low carb today was normal carb 150 years ago. Right, right. And what is considered actually low carb is less than 50 grams of carbohydrate a day. Right. Period. That's across the board. That's nutritional education. And then if you're going keto, it needs to be less than 20 grams of sugar of carbohydrate a day. Right. And we're talking, um, we're, and there's some that will go net and some that will go total. So per standard of care, when you're dealing with someone not with cancer, total is fine. But when you're looking at, um, uh, uh, excuse me, net is fine. But when you're looking at someone with a more chronic illness that really has metabolic dysfunction, you need to go to net and start to really get, or excuse me, total to get that down lower. Sorry, I confused you there. So is the combination of the fiber as well as the sugar in a therapeutic realm, you want to be looking at total carbohydrate, less than 50 grams or less than 20 grams, depending on your strategy and your goal. And for the general population, as far as preventing diabetes, Alzheimer's, osteoporosis, chronic fatigue syndrome, fibromyalgia, um, ADD, autism, cardiovascular disease, obesity, all of those patterns, you should be under 50 grams right. a, a day, right? And so that still takes us, that fits in the realm because less than 50 grams a day net could still be what the RD nutritionists are telling you of the 100 grams total a day, right? So that's where that is not unreasonable, unreasonable, you know, of what I'm saying here. So that's number one. We are all, you know, everyone talks about that 50% of the population in the U.S. is now diabetic or pre-diabetic. Can we just forget the word pre-diabetic? If you have in your vocabulary, you're already diabetic. It's not like someone goes, oh, you're pre-diabetic and you're blood count suddenly goes, oh, did you hear that? Well, no, I'm not. And then it suddenly is not the next day. No, you have 
do something about it or within a couple of weeks, months or years, you're absolutely full bore diabetic and then you're aging much quicker and glycosylating in products much faster. So insulin is a driver. What happens when we have insulin is insulin triggers off cortisol, triggers off estrogen, mm-hmm. triggers off androgens, okay, triggers off testosterone in women and estrogen in men, okay, these are what it does, that's, its, that's what it does, and it also triggers off insulin growth factor, mTOR, PIK3CA, P10, all of these other major targets that we're spending billions of dollars to find a single treatment for that a single dietary intervention would treat head-on without the side effects, and it's free, right, so just saying, that's number one. Number two, the other piece is oxytocin. Mm. When women are not feeling supported in any way at home, in their workplace, among their friends, among their partners, wherever, oxytocin levels just crash and burn. Also, elevated insulin lowers oxytocin. And to bring in the third one to this mix is cortisol. Cortisol is also the killer of oxytocin. Oxytocin is what women need to have um, sexual lubrication, nipple stimulation, and orgasm. Those are the things we need. So we keep pumping women up with testosterone and progesterone and estrogen, having them believe that that is the fountain of youth and that that's what's going to get them off, if that makes sense. And yet what we do when we add in progesterone, estrogen, testosterone into a system that's clogged up, we drive up insulin, we drive up cortisol, we dampen oxytocin. Right. 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 Then cortisol also spikes estrogen, spikes um, insulin, and dampens oxytocin. So really what I've been able to do in my practice, when I read Mindy's book, I'm like, this is how I've been approaching my patients for years. A woman will not want to have sex with her husband if she does not feel close to him. I don't care how much estrogen you have on board. It ain't going to happen. You know, if there's no intimacy, if there's no connection, it is not going to happen. That's, that's not, and if you're forcing it because you think you should, that also kills intimacy further. Right. Which is women going through cancer treatment feel guilty because, you know, I mean, let's look at it, you know, forget how you feel after having amputation of part of your body. Women feeling guilty because they're not feeling sexual. How on earth, you know, like, like you say, if we just look at cortisol, insulin, and oxytocin, how on earth, if your body is in this stress response that is chronic and ongoing, it's not like a peak and then this evening you're going to be fine. We're, we're talking about the onslaught of, of stress, of sleeplessness, of hormone imbalance, of, of the psychological experience of, of physiological changes in your body. Of course, your cortisol, your insulin, everything is, you know, and I I think what you're talking about, and I just really quickly want to get this in here. I I think this might be the book you're talking about. I looked it up while you were talking by Mindy Peltz, The Menopause Reset. Get rid of your symptoms and feel like your younger self again. You know, my husband actually said this when I was going through treatment, um, you know, because he was with a woman who went through menopause naturally and not surgically like I did. He's like, you know, no one understands that we're just a bag of hormones. We're just, we're just, we're just a walking bag of hormones. And depending on where they are at any given time affects our vitality, our sexuality, our energy, all of that. We're just a bag of hormones. So these lifestyle changes we're talking about is actually, like you said, um, uh, resetting and normalizing this. And just really quickly, 
one of my soapboxes is that this really comes back, forget whether you have cancer or not. And of course, it's, it's magnified if you have cancer and all these things are in play. But it really comes back to this, this lack of understanding from the medical world, like you said, of what menopause really is. When we have symptoms, this is the first thing I learned as a functional medicine practitioner, when we have symptoms like hot flashes, that is not because of low estrogen. And I will tell you that eight out of 10 regular doctors would be hard pressed to tell you that. What it is, is it's, it's dysregulation of this cortisol and epinephrine excretion that our bodies do. So, you know, all of a sudden, it's fluctuating estrogen. Your body likes to be at this place of balance. And then all of a sudden, you know, it's like, oh, my God, something dipped here, like your estrogen levels. So your body responds by pumping out this adrenaline to get back to that normal baseline. That adrenaline is what is we, we call a hot flash. It's not that you've got these profoundly low levels of estrogen that have to be replaced. It's that you have fluctuating estrogen, which is a normal process. Like you said, menopause is not a disease. It is a normal process that our body takes 20 years. There's early menopause, there's mid-menopause, there's late menopause, and there are different challenges to those times, but we're talking about cortisol, epinephrine, glucose surges. It's those surges of very powerful chemicals in our body that are giving us these symptoms that we think we have to treat and obliterate. Thank you. I love this point. And, you know, um, even Anna Kabeca does a great job on her book, although she is a bit of a proponent of um, hormone replacement therapy. She and I have done a podcast and we actually had a bit of this conversation. And, and I tell her in my population of patients, I never recommend any form of hormone replacement therapy. Um, and she doesn't work with cancer. So you know, I don't really think she's uh, at, 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 you know, at liberty to really speak to that specifically. But the essence of her book and her push is that women need to take charge of their metabolic issues to have a smoother ride through the menopause change. So she also herself very much sees the relationship of insulin and cortisol to this pattern. Dr. Mindy does a beautiful job in describing this. And what I'm always explaining, when I started explaining to my patients what menopause is, is it's a shift in your life that says, we're done with childbearing. We're moving into your time now. You know, it's your, it's your time now. This is, what are you going to do with this phase of your life? And so it's an opportunity. That's why I like Christian Northrup's take on this. I really like some of the emotional, spiritual aspects of it too. But what is happening, as you said, these kind of perturbations in the hormones, they will go through phases. And if you're under more stress or you're not eating well, or you're not sleeping well, those perturbations will be a little more bumpy. So you have to smooth the rest of the platform, if you will, so it's not as bumpy. But what I explained to women is that as you're shifting out of needing your ovaries to produce so much estrogen to keep you in a child rearing, childbearing, you know, era, they then hand the baton over to the adrenals. You said it so beautifully. It's like that little surge is the pumping up. How many women on the planet today, at least in Western or developed countries, have normal functioning adrenals by the time they hit a um, hit menopause. Yeah. <laughs> so that's why I told you like, what is happening? It's like, we're handing over the baton and it falls on the freaking floor because there's nothing to catch it. Right. So the way I have always gotten my gals through menopause was to deal with their adrenal dysfunction. And if I'm dealing with that and I'm getting them support, their oxytocin's going up. And if I'm getting their diet dialed in, their glucose and insulin are coming down. And guess what? Smooth sailing. So that is the important thing to know of the general population. Now let's move into cancer. Unless you like you had something to add or say there. 
Um, whatever was what you have to say is more important. So anyway. Purely <laughs> but. So here's where it comes down to when someone takes Oh, I know. One thing. Please, please. And this, I think that will tie into even in our crowd. As anybody who um, listens to my podcast knows, I am a big, 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 big advocate of Dutch testing. I think every human being on the planet should have a Dutch test. So I was just thinking, you know, it's one thing, and we all need to have this understanding, but, but turning into very practical, like what do I do next? What is the next step? Um, and I, I've heard you talk about this before, is that um, especially in our group, you know, cancer patients, mm-hmm. You know, we'll go in, you know, like I, I was told, I, I went into, personally, I was put into surgical menopause because I had a, a hysterectomy when I was 39. And I went in, and so, and, and I actually physiologically didn't go through menopause in, uh, until my um, early 50s, yeah. you know, um, even though, so I went into my, um, yeah. my doctor and I said, how do I know if I'm in menopause? And she's like, well, when you stop having periods. I'm like, seriously, you people took my uterus out. What are you talking about? And then she's like, oh, well, there's really no way we could tell. We could do a serum test, but they're not that accurate. Well, you know, let's, let's just get this really clear. No, serum testing of your hormones is not that accurate. And it is not the way you measure hormones. And, and that's all Western medicine has for you. So once again, very practical. The next step is get a Dutch test. It, it tells you not only your hormones and estrogen and how you're um, metabolizing estrogen, but it gives you the most comprehensive, beautiful pictures of this cortisol system in our body. Exactly. Your adrenals, your pituitary gland, your hypothalamus, your sex hormones, uh, your melatonin patterns, your circadian rhythm patterns. It shows you all of that. So you get to see, are you in rhythm as we talked about earlier, or are you out of rhythm? And I, it a little bit differently in my patients because a Dutch test honestly is made to help people take hormones. That's what the company is all about. It's about selling people hormones. So that's what they're based on. It's what all the hormone testing companies are about out there. But I take a very different approach because I don't use that. So I look at patterns and relationships of hormones and the metabolites. That's how I look at it. That being said, I want to go back to your point about serum testing. You should not have hormones floating around in your serum. If you do, that's pathologic. all of the standard of care doctors and even integrative doctors and functional medicine doctors putting people on hormones because they're like, well, your levels are very low in your serum uh, as they should be. Right. Right. So really scary and malpractice to me because if I see someone with elevated levels in their, in their serum, that's a, that's a concern. That is actually very scary. Because they should be at those receptor sites you were talking about. And the receptors are out of the building altogether. Like it should be get in, get out, get in, get out. So if you're seeing that, you're definitely clogged. The garages are full, right? So that's a problem. The salivary and the urinary hormone testing give you much more information. There's different ways to go about it. And there's pros and cons of even those two. Uh, And I tend to also reach for the Dutch. I'll I'll look at the other stuff too. So now we've gotten this understanding of where we are with general women, general hormones, general places of this is a natural evolution. This is where we should be. Lots and lots of studies for many, many, many years showing that the longer you're exposed to hormones, the higher your risk of cancer across the board. So women who start their periods much younger and menstruate uh, much later into um, their you know, 50s, they're definitely higher risk for cancers. We've known that forever. So that's what always blows my mind when I hear people say, and I've heard a lot in the last year or so going to conferences where I have doctors who don't treat cancer patients standing up in front of entire rooms of doctors there to learn about cancer, that hormone replacement therapy is totally safe and that it's all a myth that we're telling people that it's not. So my whole thing is 
don't bullshit me or my patients. I want to test, assess, address, and not guess because I've yet to see it be safe for any cancer patients. And I'm talking tens of thousands of labs I've reviewed directly or indirectly through other doctors that show me that exogenous hormones are not a good idea in any form or fashion before a cancer diagnosis, during, or after. So I will leave it. Including what you said, these bio-identical hormones. That's that's the catchphrase. They're still external hormones. Exactly. Just like steroids that you're taking with your chemotherapy is an external hormone and it adds insult to injury. And frankly, it's malpractice in my mind for doctors to be giving patients steroids with their cancer treatment. We'll talk about that on another podcast. Um, and luckily yes, we'll back. <laughs> many oncologists have um, backed me on this over the years and really have gotten away from it. It's a CYA at best. Um, and the potential of someone having an allergic reaction, it's going to happen whether they do the pre-drug of chemo of steroid or not. And people like Dr. Longo's work has shown that the fasting prior to chemo is your natural steroid um, to avoid that without causing problems. So that being said, let's take a look because I've got to hop onto another podcast in a few minutes, but this is so important. You're a patient, you have your breast biopsied, they send it off and it says whatever the hormonal status of that receptor site on that particular cancer cell is. You have to remember what's happening at the tumor and what's happening at the, the, the environment around the tumor and what's happening in circulation around the body are all very different engines happening simultaneously in essence. So whether you are hormone positive or negative at the tumor site of whatever sample they've taken from whatever body part you have, that does not give you a hormones are all good or hormones are all bad diagnostic. That is not what that means. It just says on that particular tumor site, there's a receptor that has or does not have a particular hormone target. That's all. That's just a matter of a particular treatment. What is happening is that no matter what, estrogen is a cell proliferator. That is its job. It grows things. Right. And when you have overall cholesterol, then underneath that, pregnenolone, the mother of all the hormones, then you have the breakdown of the boxes of estrogen, testosterone, progesterone, DHEA. When you look further downstream, that's why I like those Dutch images, you will notice that for the most part, it's like putting a coin in the top and watching it slide down and see where it lands. It almost always lands in a bucket of estrogen at the bottom of the rainbow. Right. Right. And the more malfunctioning your genetic blueprint is, or the more bunged up and dirty your genes are, the more it has a tendency to filter into the wrong type of container and typically into an estrogen container or even a toxic for hydroxyestrone, you know, um, toxic estrogen container. And so that's why it is a no-go across the board, no matter what. What also women don't understand is testosterone. They're like, well, they're giving me a little tea so I can get a little more sexy on. Well, again, and women, when we have women with testosterone, we see polycystic ovarian syndrome. Right. That's basically diabetes of your boobs and your organs. And it's a massive metabolic nightmare and it increases your risk of heart disease and all kinds of other things. No, you do not ever want to put a woman on testosterone. Also, testosterone, you go down the little filter, it turns into estradiol. That is bad in someone who's dealing with growth factor issues. If you have a patient with estradiol taking estrogen, they're increasing their insulin levels. Insulin drives insulin growth factor, mTOR, and all these other growth factors for cancer. 
cortisol drives up estrogen. If you're chronically under stress, even if you're taking massive blocking drugs, you're still making estrogen. So tamoxifen and CIRMs do not block insulin and they do not block cortisol, which create all these other stimuli that have the same impact as if you're still taking estrogen. So what I'm trying to help women understand is that they do not deal with the whole terrain, they're missing the enchilada, right? They're missing the whole process. And so no, I am not a fan ever, ever, ever of exogenous hormones in anyone and definitely not in the cancer population. And we can talk about that more in detail if anyone has follow-up questions on this, but I'm just going by basic physiology, basic biochemistry, basic lab evaluation. If you have an elevated T3 uptake, if you have an elevated cortisol, if you have an elevated insulin, insulin growth factor, A1C, you by nature have problems with estrogen metabolism and other hormone metabolism. You should probably not be putting extra crap into the bucket at that point. And so again, if we take Mindy's rule of thumb, Dr. Mindy's thing, and we start to work on lowering our insulin and lowering our cortisol or our stress response, not mitigating it and bringing up our oxytocin levels, that becomes our fountain of youth, our fountain of sexuality, our fountain of peace, our fountain on stabilized homeostatic hormonal signaling processes and oh so much more. There's also a phenomenon in that we study in functional medicine called the cortisol steel. Yes, big time. And- Oh, yeah, and the pregnenolone steel, and yeah. So basically what it means is that in, in situations of high stress where you have high cortisol, it's stealing all of your hormones from those healthy pathways and just turning it into stress hormones. So it's physiologically driving you. It's just putting pedal to the metal. And it's called the cortisol steel. You can look it up, you know, on Google. It just, you know, it tells you. And I, I recently... Um, listen to something from Joe Dispenza who talks about healing yourself. And he's like, if you sit down and meditate 30 minutes a day, you actually upregulate 1,200 healthy um, chemical processes and downregulate as many as unhealthy ones. So if there's nothing else that, that would benefit you, is sit down, close your eyes, shut out the world, and breathe for yeah. 15 minutes a day. So maybe TMI, but one of the sexiest things I do every day is meditate knee to knee with my husband for 30 minutes. Cool. It is the most powerful connection. We both are shifting our energy in real time. We've Building been- your oxytocin, your feel good hormone. Thank you. Both bringing down our insulin, both bringing down our cortisol, connecting with one another. One of the things I think is so funny is a couple of years ago through a really high stress period, my husband heard a Dave Asprey interview with um, Dr. John Gray who wrote the book way back when men are from Mars and men are from Venus. And John even saying on his podcast, like throw that shit away. That's really outdated. Just ignore that. But the new book I have, and I think it came out in like 2011 or 15 or so. He's like, this may hold some water. And my husband ended up ordering it online and we ended up reading it together because he's a biochemist. So he, it really resonated with him and it's called um, Venus on fire, Mars on ice or maybe it's switched. It might be Mar- It might be the Mars on ice, Venus on fire, but either way, that's the title. And it goes into the biochemistry. Women do not actually derive their sexual prowess and their ability to heal and be present without oxytocin. And when estrogen is high, testosterone is high, cortisol is high, insulin is high, oxytocin is low. And Next- oxytocin is something that you build from connection, you know, breastfeeding, you know, uh, you know, Tantra, you know, breathing with somebody, 
exactly. Meditation, it's that connection, be in community, you yeah. know, um, that, that, that really lovely, like, like floaty space that you get to when you feel connected to, listened to, seen, witnessed, heard. Those you know, biggest aphrodisiac right there for women is to be seen, heard, held, supported. Because in our world today, we have to do that for ourselves. Right. We had to really jump in. Can women do it all? Absolutely. Should we? Probably not. Probably not. So finding ways to support that. Now, in men today, they're all testosterone low, not because they're missing tea and they need to supplement with testosterone because that actually makes it all worse. In fact, I love hearing some of the biohacker doc, male doctors out there saying, do not whatever you do, take testosterone. You will make everything worse. You'll just make them aggro. aggro. You'll make them rageful. What they need is to get the freaking insulin and estrogen out of their diets and lifestyles. Right. So stop eating farmed animals. Stop, you know, hanging with plastics. Stop being your own, you know, insulin junkie and cortisol junkie. So men's tea goes up when they're relaxed. Women's oxytocin goes up. And I love John Gray's books. It's all about the balance of the masculine and the feminine of our biochemical pathways. So that's a fun book for you, your, you and your audience to listen to with regards to hormone health. Mindy's book, as I alluded to, and the other book that's very powerful for women and men is Montauk Chia's work. And Montauk Chia is a Chinese um, practitioner, philosopher who's learned about cultivating. He's got books, one on cultivating female sexuality, another's cultivating male sexuality, cup, um, cup, um, cultivating couple sexuality. And it's all about breath and movement, which of course, physiologically is going to change those hormones that we talked about. So I, I just really elegant. I very rarely mention this, but when I moved to San Francisco, which is kind of a wild experimental place in <laughs> my 30s, it was great. I was exposed to so many things. But one of the things I got into was a, a school that did like tantric um, sexuality workshops and tantric breathing. Yeah. And to tell you the truth, um, this is what I've, uh, I had never had an orgasm in my life. And the first orgasm that I ever had was from a tantric breathing exercise. It was a rhythmic breathing exercise. And when I, when I was going through the experience of it, I'm like, holy cow, this is what everyone's talking about. Because I could not figure out like why that had not been a very fulfilling area of my life. But it, my first orgasm, oh. I remember it so clearly, was from breathing and oxygen. It was in, it was in a room full of women. We were all like doing this very rhythmic um, you know, had this powerful music and, you know, just really got lost into that rhythm and that, in that flow. And it was tantric breathing. Wow. First of all, thank you for sharing that because it is so powerful for people to recognize that things like that are, our, our sexuality is so much bigger than just our sexual organs yes. you know, and, and our hormonal s switches. It's so much bigger than that. So that's why the work of Montauk Chia, the Tantra world, the um, you know, the, the, the stuff about John Gray and the actual hormonal thing and what Mindy's talking about, those I think are where the conversation needs to go for the health and well-being of our, of our collective, but also in helping our patients. Because if we're also dealing with oxytocin, insulin um, down-regulating, cortisol down-regulating, we are also hitting many, many targets in the cancering process as well simultaneously. So it has a win-win-win across our collective souls and beings. And um, I just love these conversations. So I'm glad we got to dive in deep. I'd love if there's any follow-up questions from your listeners, you know, uh, shoot them my way and I can maybe either do yeah. it 
please or answer them via email or something along those lines. Um, I know that you have to go um, because you're sharing your your gift in, in, um, with my with another podcast. But um, I, I will say, uh, yeah, one of the things that I'm going to um, open up uh, this group to is, is I'm going to be doing a podcast and then I'm going to have like a... Um, another separate time, like a Facebook group where it's just a Q and a. So anybody who's listening to the podcast can drop in and ask questions. And I certainly, you know, whenever Nisha is available, I'm going to have her drop in as our little surprise, you know, but, but just to, just as I want to stimulate this podcast to be more interactive. I mean, you, mm-hmm. we've all spent an hour, you know, doing this interview and those of you listening at home, but, but I want you to, to, you know, have ways to ask questions and to personalize this and to, and to really like, well, how about that? So I want to open up kind of like those office hours, like for an hour a week where people can just drop in and say, hey, I listened to this podcast. What about this? Or what, what did you mean about your vitamin D level? Or I what did you? So I'm going to um, post in sessions because when we all get together and collaborate. Community. Oxytocin. Community. <laughs> yeah. So I will, um, that's still in the formation stage and I'm definitely, I will let you know, Anisha, and I will certainly let, you know, listeners know, but just in this last minute before you have to run off is, um, I just want to thank you so much for sharing your gift with us in, in the world, in podcast, in, in this wonderful Believe Big Institute. And I encourage all of you at another time, I'll just have Anisha on to talk about that, but, you know, check it out. Um, there's a whole, um, uh, website that you can go to and, and look at and see what the vision is, what it's what it's trying to bring together. And we're all a piece of that, but you are, as always, a goddess and a leader in this area. And I cannot thank you enough for joining us again today. I'm I just adore you. Can you tell? <laughs> I'm so grateful. This was a really fun conversation. I'm glad we had some time to catch up personally beforehand as well. And I thank you. I thank your listeners. I love the idea of a communal Q&A kind of environment. Let's keep this movement happening. Let's keep us moving forward together in these crazy times. And I wish you and all of your listeners the absolute best. Thank you so much. And um, we'll talk again. Definitely. So everyone, thank you for joining us today. Um, You know, check out uh, notes and um, uh, re-listen to the podcast uh, wherever you can get your podcast, but uh, check out www boobsaren'tworthdyingfor.com there will be show notes you can also reach me send me emails I will be in contact with um, Nasha if she can't answer them I'll get her answers and share them with you and you can send those questions to radicalhealthrn at gmail.com thank you so much and until next time let's keep doing this together thanks for joining us today if you have comments or questions about today's episode or how functional medicine can help you in your own recovery from breast cancer, you can contact Deborah at RadicalHealthRN at gmail.com. You can leave positive feedback and subscribe for future episodes on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Check out Deborah's website at www.boobsaren'tworthdyingfor.com for show notes, educational info, and other important links. Until next time.